Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being here again. And let's see. Is that up there? Nope. (laughs) Honestly, I don't have very many slides on this lesson, so if we don't have them, it's okay. They're down there. I got you. Isn't that funny? Yeah, you went backward. Do I get this time back? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And we'll begin reading there in just one second. Psalm 139. You know, it seems to me that sometimes we struggle. I'm sorry, that threw me off. I wanted to say that it has been wonderful to be with all of you guys. And it's been such a joy to be with this church. Um, I also wanted to say that that lesson was, was amazing. It takes true talent and it takes a real honest student of the word to take a lesson about grumbling and complaining and to make it positive and encouraging. And I just thought, I thought that was a wonderful lesson, Brother Dave. So thank you very much. Um, I think sometimes we struggle to believe some of the most fundamental spiritual truths that we know we ought to believe. Simply because that truth about God is so vast and so amazing to us. One of the very first things that you learn about God, if you spend any time around religious people, if you study your Bible, you go to church any length of time, one of the very first things you learn about God is what we're taught in Psalm 139. And that is simply that our God is everywhere and our God knows everything. Psalm 139 verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. And your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Brothers and sisters, that psalm teaches us something so fundamental and important about our God. And it is simply this, that God knows everything and God is everywhere. And what a remarkable truth that is. One that is both convicting and one that is wonderfully encouraging. The psalmist says, where can I flee from his presence? And the answer is nowhere. The question is, what could we hope to conceal from him? And the answer is nothing, not a single thing. Our God is an omniscient God who knows it all. And that means several things in our lives that we ought to appreciate. 
The fact that God knows everything, it means that he knows my deeds. Every last thing that I do, every last sin I commit, every wonderful good deed I do, he knows everything, every bit of it. It means that God knows my words. He knows everything I say. He knows everything I type. He knows everything I text. Even if I use that new function that can unsend it before it gets fully sent. Has someone done that to you? He knows everything. That means that God knows your relationships. He knows who you're lying to. He knows whether or not you're mistreating someone. He knows if you're being faithful in your marriage or not. He knows whether you're being selfish or selfless. He knows the wonderful acts of love that you show toward the people that you love, even if they don't see it and they don't appreciate it and they don't care about it. He knows everything. That means that he knows your thoughts. He knows what's going on inside your brain. He knows what you're thinking and how you're feeling. He knows when your motivations aren't right, even if everybody else doesn't. He knows when you feel like you're at the end of your rope and you can't go on. He knows why you're here. He knows where you're going. And what you plan to do tomorrow, he knows it all. And more importantly than all of that, it means that God knows your heart. That deep down, God knows exactly what sort of person you are. Our God. Our God, he knows absolutely everything. That was not the original introduction to this sermon, but I think it is a fitting introduction to what we're going to talk about this evening. Now, this evening we're going to talk about a question that Jesus asks in John chapter 6. So I'm going to invite you to join me in John chapter 6. Because that passage, that psalm, it really sets the tone for something interesting that's going to happen here at the end of the chapter. For those of you who weren't here on Sunday or weren't here in class on Sunday, you may have missed the introduction. One of the things that I'm trying to do in my series of lessons is I'm trying to look at all, not all of them, (laughs) I'm trying to look at a question that Jesus asked because he is the one with all the answers. And so therefore we can know that when Jesus asks a question, it's not because he wants to know something about us, but it's because he wants us to learn something about ourselves. And that's what Jesus does here in John 6. He asks a very interesting question. So the beginning of this chapter begins with the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, which is something that I'm sure you guys have heard before. The multitudes are following Jesus. They follow him out into a barren place, and everybody's wondering how they're going to be fed. And Jesus does that amazing miracle where he feeds them with the five loaves and the two fishes. And then the people want to make him king. And Jesus realizes he doesn't want to be king. That's not what he's meant for. And he sees the wrong motivations of this multitude, that they're not really interested in him for the spiritual things that he's giving them. They're interested in what they think he'll provide for them physically, which is why they follow him around to the other side of the sea, because they have hungry bellies and they want more food. And so what Jesus does in the middle of the chapter is he begins teaching a very challenging lesson where he he goes so far as to tell the people you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part in me if you want to live 
And I think he teaches that lesson because he wants to, in a way, cull the herd. He wants to know who's really going to stick with me and who's going to leave. And so once Jesus teaches that lesson, he sees the multitudes melt away and nearly everybody departs from him. So beginning here at the end of chapter six, Jesus turns to his disciples and he wants to know, he wants to know, do you want to do the same thing? Do you want to walk away too? So listen to what he says there at verse 66, John six sixty-six. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve. You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. When I read that, that's a really interesting exchange. I don't know if you're fascinated by that like I am, but I'm totally fascinated by that. Jesus watches the crowds melt away. He asks his disciples, are you going to do the same thing? And of course, Peter does what Peter always does. He responds first, and he does a pretty good job. Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We're not going anywhere, Jesus. And Peter must have been so baffled by the question that Jesus asked next. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? In essence, Jesus is asking this question. It's a phrase in a different way. He's saying, didn't I choose a devil? And that seems like a really weird response for Jesus to say to Peter after he has this wonderful response. You're God. You have the words of eternal life. We're sticking with you, Jesus. And he says, yeah, but one of you is a devil. It's kind of strange. And I think what Jesus means by that question is, That he knows that one of the apostles who sticks with him in this moment isn't really devoted to him. Jesus knows that one of the twelve doesn't really belong with the twelve. Jesus knows that one of the twelve actually belongs in that group, in that hungry multitude that's melting away. One of the twelve is not like the others. He knows that while eleven of them are devoted to him. One of them, truly deep down, is devoted to the work of Satan. And so that's what Jesus says. In fact, this is his way of saying, I'm kind of surprised that all of you have stayed because because I know, I know that one of you really isn't devoted to me. And of course, in that moment, he's speaking of Judas Iscariot. What that question does is it reveals an interesting dynamic within the ministry of Jesus. Something that truly is fascinating to me. In Jesus' relationship with Judas, we see that Jesus knows exactly what's going on in the heart of Judas. Like we read in Psalm 139, right? You know everything. You know the word before it comes off my lips. You know it all. I can't hide anything from you. I can't go anywhere from your presence. You know everything about me. You search my inner parts. You know everything. And so during his ministry, Jesus knows exactly what's going on with Judas. But for some reason, Judas is convinced that Jesus never really sees him. 
And that's amazing to me because Judas has seen Jesus bend and break the laws of nature. He has watched Jesus cast out demons. He has watched Jesus read the thoughts and hearts of other men. And yet he doesn't really seem to believe that the son of God sees him. He doesn't really believe in the omniscience of God. I want to show you a few more scenes in the life of Judas that really drive this point home. This this amazing dynamic where Jesus knows exactly what's going on with his apostle. But Judas doesn't really believe that God knows everything. If you turn over to John chapter 12, look at John chapter 12 in verses 4 through 6. We see this dynamic play out here in John chapter 12 verses 4 through 6. This actually this chapter has one of my favorite stories in the Bible where Mary Mary comes to Jesus as they're reclining at table and she takes that flask of expensive perfume and she dumps it all on Jesus and wastes that expensive bottle and gives him this wonderful gift anointing him for his burial. And if I don't stop talking about it, I'm going to end up preaching that sermon. So In verse 4, it says this. This is the apostle's response to Mary's wonderful gift. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Do you see what's happening with Judas there? It's amazing, isn't it? That here's Mary, she's giving this wonderful gift, and when she gives that gift, Judas, probably thinking about what he's missing out on because that money's not going into the money box, he gets mad at her, and he makes all the other apostles mad at her, and he says, why was this money not given to the poor? And so it's amazing what we see in Judas here. Not only is he holding the money box for the Son of God and stealing from it, But he thinks he can sit there and pretend like he really cares about the poor people when the truth is he's just concerned about his own greedy desires. And the whole time he thinks what? Jesus doesn't know. Jesus doesn't see. It's amazing to me. If you really believe that the son of God knew everything then you wouldn't steal in the first place. If you really believe that the Son of God knew everything, then you wouldn't take this moment when Mary gives this wonderful gift and try to pretend like you really care about the poor people. But Judas just doesn't seem to believe that God knows everything. Turn over one chapter to John 13. John 13, beginning in verse 21. We see this happen again. John 13 Beginning in verse 21, what happens in this chapter, Jesus and his disciples, they've gathered for the Last Supper. In verse 2, the Bible makes it clear that Judas has already made up his mind that he is going to betray Jesus. And after Jesus washes their feet and as they're eating dinner together, Jesus actually decides to confront Judas rather bluntly. Listen to what happens in verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, I say to you. That one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back with us on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel... He took 
and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered him into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And so here are Jesus and his apostles. They're sitting there at dinner and Jesus decides to just lay it all out there and says, one of you guys is going to betray me, which, of course, <laughs> fosters a lot of conversation. Which one of it is which one of us is, is it going to be, Jesus? Don't leave us in suspense. Tell us who's going to do it. And then he says, look, the person I give the morsel to, that's the one. Then he takes the bread and he does what? He gives it to Judas and he says, whatever you do, do it quickly. That's pretty blunt, isn't it? That's pretty obvious, isn't it? That Jesus looks at Judas and says, hey, what you're about to do, I want you to do it quickly. I know that you're the one who is about to betray me. And it's funny. How would you respond to that if you were Judas? If you had this plan concocted to betray your master and he said, you're the one who's going to betray me, what would you do? I don't know. If that's me, I think I'm going to break down in that moment. I think I'm going to confess my sin. I think I'm going to ask for forgiveness. But what does Judas do? He goes out into the night and he goes to betray Jesus. And it seems, it seems like even as blunt and as obvious as Jesus was with this, Judas really doesn't believe that Jesus sees him and knows what he's up to. And I think that's revealed in the next act in Judas's timeline. The next time we see Judas, we're going to go ahead and go to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. The next time we see Judas, he has led a group of people to the Garden of Gethsemane to come and arrest Jesus. And Matthew and Mark's gospel both tell us that Judas had given them a sign to help them identify Jesus in the darkness. And we read about that in Mark 14, beginning in verse 44. It says, now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. I don't know about you, but I've always been fascinated by that. I've always been fascinated by the idea that Judas decides to betray Jesus with a kiss. It says that when he came to the garden, when he approached Jesus, he said, Rabbi, and then he went and he he betrayed him with a kiss. And it makes me wonder, why doesn't Judas just say, hey, that's Jesus. Go get him. Now, maybe you guys will think I'm walking out on too much of a limb here. And if you think so, just cut it off and let me fall. But it seems to me that Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss and he shouts rabbi because ultimately what he wants to do is he wants to maintain the appearance of innocence. He wants to make it seem like he didn't lead the soldiers there. He wants to leave the impression that that they just followed him, that he hadn't really betrayed Jesus, that he still saw him as his rabbi. He still loved him. That's why he kissed him on the cheek. He wasn't responsible for the soldiers being there. He wants to maintain an appearance of innocence, which is something you only do if you don't believe that Jesus really sees you. So in the life of Judas, what we see, at least in these three scenes, I think. Is that sometimes, even when God has given us every reason to believe otherwise, sometimes we really struggle to wrap our minds around the idea that God 
sees me. That he knows the words I'm going to say before they leave my lips. That he knows what I do and what I say. He knows everything about my relationships. He knows what I'm thinking and what my motivations and intentions are. And ultimately, deep down, he knows my heart. Judas shows us that even though God has told us that he knows us, sometimes we forget that at the end of the day, we all stand completely exposed before the God of heaven. He sees us. And he knows exactly. He knows exactly who you are. Now, I think there are three applications or three different messages that we should take home from, from, from all of that information. Three different ideas that I think we should take with us. And, and I, I apologize that we use Judas to make this point. Because that seems like it's, it's only talking about, you know, God sees you what you're doing all the time. And that's not what all the points are, even though that's a valid point to make. But I think there are three very important, three very important messages to three different groups of people here this evening that we ought to take away when we look at the life of Judas and when we consider the message of Psalm 139. So I think, first of all, this, this story and this lesson, it sends a message to those who may be wearing masks. It sends a message to people who live like Judas. One of the things that's really amazing to me is that throughout his ministry, Jesus never really totally openly confronts Judas. Right? Isn't that what you would do if you were Jesus? If you could read the thoughts and hearts of men and you knew that the guy in charge of the money box was pilfering money from it, what would you do? I'm going to call him in for a meeting as soon as I possibly can. The second he takes that first dollar, I'm calling Judas in. I'm going to say we're going to give the money box to not Peter because he's pretty rat. Maybe Thaddeus. Okay, we're going to give the money box to Thaddeus. You're being you're this is getting taken away from you because I can't trust you. That's what I would do if I were Jesus. Right. It's interesting that that Jesus never does that. He never looks Judas dead in the eye and says, I know what you're doing. I know that you're stealing. And I think one of the things that happens to us, one of the things that probably happened to Judas, is you start to make assumptions when Jesus doesn't call you down on the carpet. You start to think things like, Well, look, if he really knew what was going on, then he'd definitely call me in for a meeting. And because he hasn't called me in for a meeting, then he must not know what's really going on. He must not really see me. And I think sometimes we do that in our own lives, that when we allow ourselves to kind of dip our toe into sin, and then God doesn't drop an anvil on us from heaven, we kind of think to ourselves, maybe he doesn't really see. Maybe he doesn't really know. And so sometimes, just like Judas, we can we can fall prey to thinking that God's inaction is a sign of ignorance. Or if it's not a sign of ignorance, it's at least a sign of tolerance. That God is letting me do what I'm doing and he's not punishing me and he's not letting me be found out because he doesn't really care what I'm doing or he doesn't really know what I'm doing. But I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that what God is really showing you and what Jesus really shows Judas is amazing patience. 
as we read in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what he's doing. And isn't it sad that sometimes, sometimes we look at the way that God has been gracious to us. We look at the way that God has been so patient and merciful with the sin that we've let live in our lives. That instead of being thankful for his grace, we think, we think that he doesn't see and that means we can keep doing it. We need to recognize, brothers and sisters, that if we are those kinds of people, if we are at that point in our life where we've let sin creep in and we're not doing anything about it and we're not handling it and we're not getting rid of it, we need to understand that our Lord, our God, knows, He sees, and He loves us dearly. And what He's doing is He is begging us and He is being patient with us. And asking us, asking us to come back to him, to leave this thing behind, to repent of these sins, and to, and, and to come back to him and be the kind of person he wants us to be. He is not tolerating. He is not ignorant. He is amazingly patient. And so maybe that's you this evening. Maybe you have let sin creep into your life. Remember that he sees you. Remember that he has been patient with you. And that it's time for you to do the right thing. There's a second group of people that I think could benefit from this story tonight. Not just those who are wearing masks, but also to those who are people pleasers. And I wrote in my notes that I might regret saying this. And now that I do, I kind of do. I I should have found a different term for it, but I couldn't. Because that's kind of a loaded term and kind of has a negative connotation. And I don't quite mean by that. The way that it sounds. Because sometimes when you say people pleasers, what you mean is, oh, we're talking about hypocrites. We're talking about people who act one way in front of your face and then do something different behind your back because they just want to please people. And that's not really what I mean. What I mean by that term is that sometimes what we do is we go throughout our lives and we spend our lives so focused on pleasing the people in our lives that we don't even think about pleasing the God of heaven. Sometimes we spend our entire lives looking for approval in people rather than looking toward God for approval. I don't know about you, but my life can far too easily become nothing more than just making sure I keep the people in my life happy. Life can very easily become children just trying to please their parents and not thinking about more than that. It can very easily become husbands trying to please their wife or wives trying to please their husbands. It can very easily become Christians trying to please their elder or Christians trying to please their preacher. And one of the mistakes we make is we think to ourselves that, that, look, so long as these people approve of me, so long as my wife thinks I'm doing the right thing, so long as my parents think I'm doing the right thing, so long as Brent thinks I'm doing good and doesn't get mad at me, then I'm good with God. And we don't think about the person who really matters. We think about what Brent sees. We don't think about what God sees. We need to remember... That the approval of people is not everything, nor is the disapproval of people everything. But what really matters, what really matters is whether or not with my life I have pleased the God of heaven. He is the only one who truly sees who we are, and he is the only one whose approval really matters. 
back where I'm from in Tampa, we have a, a large contingent of college students. And so every fall, their parents come and they drop them off and they're there at services. And then the next day or later that afternoon, their parents head off and they go back home and they leave their kids there. Many of them being left on their own for the very first time. And one of the things that I, I, I preached this on that college student Sunday recently, one of the things that, that I think uh, a mistake that a lot of young college students make is that day when they finally get dropped off at school and their parents are finally gone, they look at that day and they consider it what? Freedom, right? And they say, this is freedom. Finally, my parents aren't looking after me. Finally, that old elder from church who always asked me how I was doing, he's not here anymore. Finally, I'm by myself. I'm accountable to myself. I live in a dorm. There's some dorm parents, but they don't always pay very good attention. So I'm on my own. I'm accountable to myself. This is freedom. It's not freedom, though. Not if you stop for two seconds to think about it. What that really is, is it is clarity. Because for the very first time in your life, you should realize or they should realize that their life was never about pleasing parents. But their life has always been about pleasing God. Amen. The God who isn't driving back home to Kentucky, who doesn't exactly know what they watched on TV the other day. It's about the God who knows everything and sees everything. Sometimes our lives can be about pleasing those people that we can see right in front of us that don't see us all the way down to our core. And we forget, we get distracted, we don't think about the fact that my life really is about pleasing the God of heaven who sees me. So remember, remember to look beyond those people in your life that you're trying to please. And remember, remember the one who sees all. But I think finally... This lesson, it, it sends a message to the faithful. It sends a message to those who truly trust in God, who are truly interested in Him. It sends a wonderful and encouraging message to them. It reminds us that God knows who we are. And the truth is, for those people who love God, for those people who seek God, for those people who care about God and are trying to serve God, they're there should be nothing more comforting than to know that God sees me and God knows me. That's actually, that's actually what Psalm 139 is all about. If you'll go back there with me, this psalm is not a psalm about how God has the all-seeing eye and he'll catch you no matter what you're doing. Even though that's true, that's not what this psalm is about. This psalm is about, I am a faithful person. I love God. And because I love God and because I'm trying to serve God, no matter what happens to me, no matter what men do to me, no matter what emotions I feel or what I'm going through, I need to remember that he sees everything. He knows how I feel. He knows what I'm enduring. He knows how I'm suffering. He knows how I'm fighting for him. Amen. And so if you read on later in the chapter, Psalm 139, verse 19, it says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Amen. The psalmist says, God, you know who I am. 
You know that I love you. And the psalmist can take great comfort in that. (coughs) And so brothers and sisters. We need to remember. We need to remember that he sees us. That he knows the battles that I'm fighting. He knows how to help me grow in just the right way. He knows how to find all those harmful ways in me. And and, and to bring things into my life that will help me grow and improve and get past that. He knows just how hard you're striving to be like his son. He knows that if you're the kind of person who abuses his grace or just uses his grace when you need it. He knows that even though you may be imperfect, he knows whether or not he truly has your heart. And that is a comforting thought. Because sometimes when we go through life, we feel like we're getting beat up. Sometimes we fall flat on our face. Sometimes we make so many mistakes. Sometimes we do things totally wrong and we wonder whether or not we can really be forgiven. We wonder whether or not we can really, we can really recover, whether we can really overcome. And we need to remember in those moments that God loves us and he sees us and he knows exactly what's going on. God knows if he has your heart. Does he have your heart? That's an important question for all of us to ask. But you should know that if you truly desire the things of God, if you truly are seeking God, if you truly are not distracted by the things of this world or pulled in by the by the shiny trinkets in life, but if you truly are striving to give your life to God, he sees that. In the midst of all the mistakes you may make. He knows who you are. And also if you're here this evening. He knows. He knows you may not be a child of his. But he knows what's going on inside your heart. And so if you're here this evening. And you realize that you've never given your life to Christ. And you know that you need the salvation that he provides. You know that you need the cleansing that can only come by his blood. He knows that you really know that you need to transform and you need to be changed and you need to become a child of God. He knows that. And so the Bible says that if we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and we're willing to repent of our sins that caused him to go to the cross in the first place, if we're willing to confess our faith before men, then he knows us. Then we can be baptized in water to have our sins washed away. We can rise to walk in newness of life and we can become his child. If you need to do that tonight or if you need to do anything else that we can help you with, we invite you to come to the front while we stand and while we sing.